The only good thing about a donut is the whole Jack LaLanne. Today, we're going to talk about the science behind how sugar is not food, but poison. Thank you, Robert Lustig. So the big question is, how do women over 40 like us keep weight off, have great energy, balance our hormones and our moods, feel sexy and confident, and master midlife? If you're like most of us, you're not getting the answers you need and remain confused and pretty hopeless to ever feel like yourself again. As an OBGYN, I had to discover for myself the truth about what creates a rock-solid metabolism, lasting weight loss, and supercharged energy after 40 in order to lose 100 pounds and fix my fatigue. Now, I'm on a mission. This podcast is designed to share the natural tools you need for impactful results and to give you clarity on the answers to your midlife metabolism challenges. Join me for tangible natural strategies to crush the hormone imbalances you're facing and help you get unstuck from the sidelines of life. My name is Dr. Kieran Dunstan. Welcome to the Hormone Prescription Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Hormone Prescription with Dr. Kieran. Thank you so much for joining me today. My guest today is Dr. Richard Johnson, and he loves fat. I know you don't, but he does. And it's a good thing because he's been studying it for years. And he's got some epic information to share with you about why nature wants us to be fat, the surprising science behind why we gain weight and how to prevent and reverse it. And he's done the research. He loves research. He went into medicine because he wanted to figure out what was causing diseases and treat the reason why we had diseases, not just medicate them with drugs and sur- surgery. So he's a doctor after my own heart. He is an internal medicine doctor. He's also trained in nephrology and infectious disease, and he's an avid researcher. So he has a book, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. We're going to talk about it today. We're going to dive into some of the details about sugar and really how bad it is. And you can't hear about this enough and the ways in which which types of sugar contribute to overweight and obesity, how you can mitigate these types of sugar in your diet, how your water and hydration status, your salt status, your uric acid status all affect these, how menopause is associated with insulin resistance and these link into these other factors. So before I get too technical, I'm going to bring in Dr. Richard Johnson, who is the researcher. And he, I love the way he describes these things. He tells it almost like a story with a plot and a murder mystery. And I love a good murder mystery. So you're going to love hearing him talk because he really has a passion for the science behind what makes us overweight and why nature is conspiring to make us overweight. And he's really going to spell it out for you and give you some practical, actionable tips. I know you want those. He's got them. And I've already told you a little bit about him. Let me just check out his bio and see if there's anything else important that you need to know. He is a professor of medicine at University of Colorado. He does practice medicine, but he really loves research. And he's done it for more than 25 years. He is an international expert on sugar and uric acid and its role in obesity, their role in obesity and diabetes. His book is Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. It tells the story of why we are becoming obese and what to do about it. Becoming, I mean, we're kind of in the the era of epidemic obesity. So we're in it, folks. And if you want to get out, then you want to listen to Dr. Rick, as he likes to be called. Thank you, Karen. It's wonderful to be on your show. 
I'm so excited to have you here talking about one of my favorite topics, fat, right? What woman doesn't love talking about fat and how to get rid of it? And we're going to dive into why nature is conspiring against us to make us fat and the surprising science, why we gain weight and how to prevent and reverse it. But first, I always like to get some type of background for everybody listening. Why are you so passionate about this? How did that happen? You come from an internal medicine background, also nephrology, infectious disease. So how did you become fascinated with fat? Well, it began when I was uh, when I was becoming a doctor. I just really have been interested in the causes of disease, even more so than the treatment of disease. And my I come from a family where there's been a lot of scientists, and so I, you know, from the very beginning, I always was wondering why do they have diabetes? Why do they have this condition or that? As opposed to just giving them insulin and having them come back to see you in clinic, you know? And so uh, very early on, I started my research career and I was very, I initially I studied high blood pressure and high blood pressure, as you know, is linked with obesity and it's linked with insulin resistance. And one thing led to another. And over the last 20 some years, over 30 years, actually, I've been doing research and uh, probably about half of my time is doing research from the basic laboratory to animals in the wild to studies of people. And I've been a very active researcher. But I also, I have a clinical practice. I see people, treat people. And so I have kind of a, I try to do both, both ends of the uh, spectrum. Yeah, and you know, it reminds me of that Hippocrates quote. Oh gosh, somebody shared it in one of the podcast episodes recently about the goal of good medicine is to make you not need it. And so you came into this field thinking that you were more interested in why people got disease. If we can figure out why they get it and fix the why, then they won't get it. Right. Exactly. It's a much more effective. <laughs> it's a much more effective way of helping people, and you know, uh, absolutely, that's been the main driver. I've been studying, particularly, got interested in this thing called the metabolic syndrome, where people develop obesity and prediabetes and high blood pressure, and it seems to be the precursor for just about you know, many of the diseases that are affecting us today. So, you know, when I would go, when I go on the ward, you know, the residents will come up to me and say, you know, well, we have a patient with diabetes and hypertension and heart disease and gout and fatty liver. And, and it's just kind of like a litany of, of these common diseases. And I believe they're all linked. And so my research took me into diet and into nutrition and into what was it in the diet that triggers these changes that we're seeing. And I was particularly puzzled by the fact that in 1900, only one in 30 people were obese. Only one in 50,000 had diabetes. It was like diabetes was almost unheard of. High blood pressure was seen in less than 5% of the population. Heart disease really hadn't even been described that coronary artery disease wasn't described till 1910. And so, you know, there were only 500 cardiologists in the entire United States in 1940. I mean, it was just not a very common problem. But today, you know, it's just gone crazy. So the question is, you know, why? Why did this increase? And obviously, the biggest uh, thought has been it relates to diet and 
And then that, that led me to, to my research. Right. And those are some very sobering statistics. Nowadays, hypertension, diabetes, coronary artery disease are so commonplace that we, we consider it normal. It's part of our normal vocabulary. But you're right, what, 100, just over 100 years ago, these were kind of anomalies. But now we consider it common. And I'll go ahead and plug in here hormones because it's the same when it comes to menopause. You know, over 100 years ago, women didn't live any significant amount of time in menopause. So it really wasn't an issue. Now that our lifespan has increased due to medical advances and improved health care, we will live sometimes a third to a half of our life in menopause in a state of what I call hormonal poverty. And it seems like all the symptoms of what I call midlife metabolic mayhem and disease and premature death from menopause are quote unquote normal and because most women suffer from them. But I think that we have to kind of take a page out of the book of these other metabolic diseases that you described where they're now commonplace. And so We have physicians that are dedicated to treating these disorders and medications and whole fields of study. And really, it should be the same with menopause. But if you compare (laughs) the, the amount of funding and doctors who do research on menopause and and treatment, it's really not equivalent to that of diabetes, hypertension, and coronary artery disease. So I just wanted to get that in because I think it's- You're right. Absolutely right. (laughs) After menopause happens, there's such a dramatic increase in the risk of high blood pressure and obesity and diabetes and all of these metabolic complications go way up in women after menopause. And it is related for sure to these hormonal changes. And actually, it's very much linked to our research. And I agree with you. I like that phrase, hormonal poverty. That's... uh, It really does describe the situation well. Yes. So let's dive into your research on sugar, uric acid, all kinds of wonderful things. Where would you like to start? Well, I can begin by kind of how we approached this problem. So the question we we were asking ourselves is, I'm not afraid to ask big questions. So the the question that we asked ourselves is, you know, what's driving obesity? And so many people study it. And usually they study it from this standpoint of obesity is a disease that's associated with metabolic syndrome and diabetes. And they kind of come at it like it's a, you know, it's a very bad thing to have. But we decided to kind of take a twist on it and kind of look at it from the standpoint of nature. And in nature, obesity is, can be life-saving. And you probably know this well, you know, if you're a big brown bear yeah. and you want to make it through the winter, you better have enough fat. And so what happens is they, in the spring, they're, they're kind of lean. And during the summer, they, they actually stay lean and mean, as they say. But then uh, about eight weeks before they hibernate, they purposefully get fat. And so I realized that it was kind of like a switch. They're eating normally every day. And if they eat too much one day, they eat less the other. And actually, there's data in animals that animals regulate their weight normally. If you fast it, an animal for a month and make it lose 20% of its weight, which is sort of mean. But if you do that and you stop that, they'll go right back to the weight they're supposed to be at. 
if you feed an animal, force feed it so that it has to gain weight, and then you stop that, they'll go back to their normal weight. So normally animals regulate their weight, but you know, all I have to do is look across, you know, walk to the supermarket and you recognize that people are not regulating their weight today. But interestingly, if you look at a bear, it regulates its weight perfectly. And then eight weeks before it hibernates, it suddenly starts eating voraciously. It looks for food. It starts foraging dramatically. It increases mm -hmm. its weight eight to 10 pounds a day. It becomes insulin resistant. It gets fat in its blood. It gets fat in its liver. It develops the metabolic syndrome, but it is purposeful because it wants to get that fat so that when it goes into its den and it sleeps through the winter, it lives off the fat. And it gets not from just the energy from the fat. You know, it breaks down the fat to produce energy. So you don't have to eat when you have fat enough. You don't have to eat when you're breaking down the fat because you can get your energy from the fat. But they even get their water from the fat. So when a bear hibernates, it doesn't drink water for four months. doesn't eat food for four months and it lives off its fat. Mm -hmm. So when we think about animals like this or animals that do long distance migration or nesting, we see that nature wants them to be fat, at least for that period of time. And the question is, what triggers them to go from kind of a normal weight to one where they're really gaining weight fast? And then we thought to ourselves, if we can figure this out, then maybe we can see if people have accidentally turned on this switch all the time. That was sort of the question. And I had also, I have to admit, I'd been studying this for quite a while at the time we started studying. We did study hibernating bears and we studied hibernating squirrels. And so we did do studies, but I already had an idea, I have to admit. And the idea I had related to sugar and particularly to fructose. And I was thinking about, I don't know if you know it, but the little hummingbird has yeah. a meta metabolic rate that's Unbelievable. I mean, they, they're beating their wings so fast and their heart mm -hmm. beats so high. I mean, it's like they are metabolically fantastic. They can do anything. They can actually, they can fly long distances even. I mean, they, they are just an amazing species. They are, right? Yeah, and beautiful. But, but and beautiful. <laughs> and they eat sugar. They're eating sugar. And they, they, nectar, you know, where they put their little bills in those flowers mm -hmm. and they pull out, they suck out the, uh, the nectar. Nectar is like sugar water. And you know what happens? During the day, that's all they eat. And they become internally fat. Like, you can't believe it. Their liver turns white. Mm -hmm. It becomes white with fat. They call it the pearly white liver of the hummingbird. It's supposed to be like the fattest of all livers of birds and their glucose levels go up to like 700 in their blood. So they, they actually become diabetic. They're diabetic, fat, visceral fat, liver fat, all in one day. And then at the end of the day, they quit eating. They actually will start resting. And when they rest, they, they continue with that high metabolic rate and they burn off the fat and they drop their blood glucose levels by hundreds of you know milligrams. And mm -hmm. basically, uh, they go back to normal by the morning and then they start over. 
And so I was well aware that fructose can really can make an animal fat one day if you eat enough. You know, if you're a hummingbird, even with your metabolic rate, it can overcome you. And so Mm -hmm. it just told me that there's something about sugar that's particularly strong. And, And actually, that's one of my quotes. Sugar turns to fat because when you feed animals sugar, they increase their fat content and they, they decrease their muscle mass actually a little bit. And so it's really a powerful, it's a powerful food for increasing the fat. And when we started looking at this, we realized it was the fructose that was really the key. You know, sugar or table sugar is sucrose, it's a, but it's actually two sugars. It's fructose and glucose bound together. And high fructose corn syrup is another added sugar that's in foods. And by the name, you can tell it's got fructose in it. It's got high amounts. (laughs) Yeah, high amounts. High fructose corn syrup. But let's remember that it's high, and it is higher than table sugar. So uh, yeah, bears bears and hummingbirds. It started there with the sugar. Sugar turns to fat. A lot of people still think that it's fat that makes you fat. It's not. It's sugar. And can you talk a little bit about high fructose corn syrup? Because you used to hear a lot more about it. And then I don't think it's so much in the media, but it's still being served daily. It's it's (laughs) unbelievable. So, so here was the problem. I don't know. You know, I'm old enough that I remember when ice cream was made with regular sugar. And if the, the ice cream got, was in the freezer a long time, it would form crystals and it wasn't as, good. And so then they found that they could make a syrup of sugar. High fructose corn syrup is basically a syrup. And, uh, you know, it has a little bit more fructose because fructose is the sweeter of the two sugars. So there's fructose and glucose. And it has a little more of the fructose, which is sweeter. And people like that. And uh, because it's liquid, they can mix it into food really well. It doesn't crystallize. It's got a good shelf life. And so when it was introduced, they could found that they could put it in all kinds of food. And when they put it in the food, they can blend it so they can make it strong so it's really sweet or they can make it just subtle. And actually, if it's just subtle, it just makes makes it taste better. You know, like crackers, if you add just a tiny bit of sugar, you know, I don't know if when you eat a wheat thin, it's got a little sweetness that's so subtle that you can't tell. It hits that that bliss point, you yeah, know, yeah, that everybody exactly. has biologic, right. And Programmed we did it. We, for the yeah. fat, salt, and sugar. Yeah. So yes, go ahead. I'm sorry to yeah. interrupt. No, no, no. I'm sorry to, my enthusiasm is getting ahead of me here. So sorry. But, but anyway, so it turns out that, you know, when they added the high fructose corn syrup, they found that they could just really, that people would buy the food more. And so a lot of processed foods where you, where, you know, they add things into it, they'll add this high fructose corn syrup or sugar and salt's another one. And so these processed foods have about 70, 70%, 75% of them contain either sugar or high fructose corn syrup and a lot of salt too. And so this, this is, turns out to be a great way to trigger this switch because in, in animals in the wild, a lot of them will eat fructose as their means to trigger the switch and bears it's they eat fruit and although I like fruit and you like fruit and normally small amounts of fruit, like what humans eat, is healthy because it contains so many good things, a bear won't eat, you know, 
two apples or one apple at a time. It'll eat as many as it can stuff in its mouth. And so they can get a hundred fruit. And then when you eat that much, the sugar adds up. So that that's how they do it. They eat a lot of fructose and they can trigger this, this thing. And we did studies in animals. So then, and we could show that fructose triggers this switch. And when you feed an animal fructose, not only do they get hungry, they get hungry, they get thirsty, they want to eat more food, and they do. They don't control their appetite anymore, so they eat more than they should. They drop their energy metabolism when they're resting. They start becoming insulin resistant, and they raise their blood pressure, and they put fat in their liver. Anyway, they do all of these things. They even get behavioral changes where they start foraging. It's an incredible program. So it's like a whole orchestra is initiated. It isn't just about eating more. And this is all triggered by fructose. And it turns out to be unique. It's unique to fructose. And we actually figured out how it worked. And it's really cool because when you eat food, you're getting energy, right? We get our energy from the food we eat. And so when we eat food, we make energy in our bodies that we use to do what we do. That's why we eat. But there's two types of energy. There's really two major types of energy. There's the active energy that we, that we use every day. And we call that ATP. That's the energy we make. We make it in our mitochondria and other places in our body. And then the other energy is the stored energy. And the stored energy is fat because it can be turned into energy when you break it down. That's how the bear gets through the winter. So so it turns out that when you eat, most people were thinking that when you eat, you get this energy. And if we fill up our ATP and once the uh, gas tank is full, then the extra goes into fat. And it turns out that's not the way it works. Once the ATP is full, you can, your weight's regulated. You, you're not going to eat anymore. It's like a system that controls your weight. Mm-hmm. But what fructose does is it, it lowers the ATP. It's the only nutrient that lowers the ATP in the cell. And when that happens, it makes you hungry because you want to have full. You want to have a full tank. And so what you do is you eat more. But be, the way fructose works is it doesn't allow you to really build up that ATP. It makes the f- energy that comes in go over to the fat. So energy is the same. You're, you're eating energy and you're, you're storing energy, but instead of, or using it, but instead of uh, using it for ATP, it's going preferentially to the fat. Mm-hmm. And, and because the ATP levels are low, you keep eating. And so it's a fantastic system for making an animal want to gain weight. You know, as you're saying that, I've experienced this, maybe people listening have. So I don't consume a lot of fruit because the more fruit I eat, the more fruit I want, the more food I want. I've always noticed that. And, (laughs) you know, there are all these diet wars going on and people say, well, why do you hate fruit? And Dr. Kieran, I say, I don't hate fruit. It just... 
is not necessarily the, the best option when there are other options. So you're saying that the switch that triggers it for the hummingbird and for the hibernating bears is sugar, and that's what's switching us, yes. the survival yeah. switch that's causing us to gain weight as well? Yeah, so originally, okay, originally our work said it was from just from the sugars that we were eating. And, you know, like a hummingbird gets it from nectar. The bear gets it by eating a lot of fruit. To, to address your question, you know, we've done so, a fair number of studies. And, if, and for most people, if they eat a few fruit, it's actually good because you got fiber and potassium and all this. But if you eat a lot of fruit or if you eat certain fruits that are, are sweeter than others, you can activate the switch from fruit. I have had people who couldn't lose weight and they were eating, drinking smoothies of fruits. And I had them stop that and they were able to lose weight very quickly. So it is true. But in general, fruits and our work, we actually did a clinical trial where we gave, put people on a low fructose diet with or without some fruit supplements. And for most people, natural fruit supplements are good. Now, if you're eating bananas, if you're eating, you know, apples, bananas, plums, pears, those are particularly can raise either raise your glucose a lot or, or raise provide a big fructose load. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so I I think we're in agreement actually totally. But anyway, okay. so then we did have we had a big Go bad ahead. discovery though. It's really important for me to bring this up for your okay. people listening, and that was that you know so in the beginning I said that's all high fructose corn syrup. It's all added sugars. It's these, these are the foods that have the fructose. This is the food that activates the switch. It's got to be that. And so I was targeting them and, and high, you know, and then I found out too, that you like, if you knocked out the taste of an animal so that it can't taste sweet, it's still like sugar. And so I, I realized that even when people were putting sugar in the foods, even if you can't taste it, it's like, a mechanism to make you like it because the animals that can't taste sweet still seek sweet foods. So I thought it was all that. And then, of course, I started thinking and I realized that not all animals that hibernate are eating fruit. And also, you know, the penguin can really get fat very easily. And there's not much fruit down in Antarctica. So, you know, I realized mm -hmm. that there were, had to be other foods that could trigger the switch. And the big discovery was when we figured out that the body can make fructose from carbs, you know, so French fries, for example, probably not our favorite food, right? <laughs> right. But yeah, but anyway, but French fries do not contain fructose. They contain starch. They don't contain sugar, really. They contain starch. Now, when the starch broke, is broken down, it makes glucose. And glucose is a sugar, but it's not fructose, right? So, but when the glucose goes up in the blood, it gets, it stimulates insulin, which helps drive fat, of course, but it also is producing fructose. And so glucose can be converted to fructose. And especially when you eat a high glycemic carbs like rice, potatoes, all those foods that we love, bread, mm -hmm. hot bread, you know, there's very few people who, you know, didn't, don't enjoy, you know, hot bread or you know, French fries or things like that, but we know that they're not good for us. And, and well, we, why we know that it's not good for us is, is because when you give 
animals a lot of carbs, they also can gain weight. And we did studies where we gave glucose and the animals actually became fat, just like giving fructose did. But when we studied them, we figured out that what was happening was they were converting the glucose to fructose in their body. Mm-hmm. And then we went and proved it, you know, with using, you know, special animals that can only metabolize fructose and stuff like that or can't. And so what we did, so basically it turns out that we realized that it wasn't just sugar and high fructose corn syrup. They, they are the, they definitely bad guys, right? They're bad guys. <laughs> I love how you're telling this. Like, it's like a murder mystery. I can't wait to hear yeah. it. Okay, so go ahead. Yeah, they, they're, so definitely, then they're definitely villains at the scene, right? But right. there are other villains too. And those villains include bread, rice, potatoes, and all these foods that I love. So it's really disappointing. But I do <laughs> want to say that it isn't that you should never eat sugar or cake or ice cream. And I think probably many of the people listening to me, maybe you uh, have some ice cream in front of you right now. But, but the truth is I'm saying, telling you that it's not that you can't eat this stuff or shouldn't, but that it's clearly that we're eating too much of it. And yeah. there's something, you know, and I would say like, don't ever drink a soft drink. I mean, it's just pure sugar. It's going to activate yeah. this switch, you know, so try really to, if you want to get healthy, try to cut back on these things. Right. I would say I'm in Argentina right now and they eat lots of bread and there's lots of potatoes and there's really no obesity here. You rarely see an obese person on the street or even overweight. And so I've been kind of looking around and figuring out why that is. And I guess it's because they don't eat it all day, every day with every meal. And they're also extremely active. So they burn it off. And and the same was true when I was in Africa. You know, rice is a staple in many countries. Bread is a staple in many countries. But they don't consume the sheer volume of these fructose containing items that we do right so go on there, and there is a there is a oh, secret there, there's a secret yeah. weapon too for you to consider when you're wandering around there and i there's two secret weapons so let me tell you and okay. you probably probably already know about the one but the one is salt you know for years people were saying ah you know salt's you know been linked with hypertension but it, if anything a lot of us should eat a lot of salt but it turns out that when you eat a lot of salt, salt can be really good for sure. But if you eat a lot of salt so that the salt concentration goes up into your blood, goes up in your blood, and the way you'll know that is you'll feel thirsty. If you start feeling thirsty from eating salt, it turns out that your salt concentration in the blood is high. And when that happens, it is like a, it stimulates the chemical reaction that converts glucose to fructose. So glucose, you have to have glucose around to make fructose, but if you have the chemical reaction turned on, you can make a lot more. And so it turns out that if I eat a baked potato that has no salt on it, and it's just a plain potato, I'm not gonna make as much fructose as if I salted. So salted French fries are much worse than regular potatoes just because of that. But now, 
Rick, are we talking about sodium chloride or potassium chloride? Because sodium chloride. You're talking it's about sodium. sodium. So that's we're not talking sodium. about sea salt because sea salt no. should be not not have that. Okay, just want to make salt. clarify for everyone. Right, sea salt does not do it. Potassium chloride does not do it. It's specifically sodium chloride. And actually, animals love salt licks, and they do it. They actually want the sodium chloride. If There have been studies done where they take deer, and they make these licks with different kinds of, of salts. It's only mm -hmm. the sodium, sodium chloride that they sodium. like. Okay. And it's because we think that that raises the serum sodium, which is a trigger to make fructose. So if you're eating a lot of salt, you can make more fructose. Now, there's another twist, and this twist is sort of interesting because it's, uh, it's a little – it will sound challenging initially. But it turns out that fats, like seed oils and fats, can play a role in obesity as well. And, you know, there are the, the, the low-carb people will say, well, I'm on a low-carb diet and I'm on a – which is a high fat diet and I'm losing weight on it. And I'll explain how that works because the reason that is, is because you need the carbs to trigger the switch. So if you trigger this switch and lower the ATP, then you're going to eat more. Okay. So the carbs, the fructose is really there to make you hungry and to disrupt your ability to control your weight. So if you don't have a lot of fructose in your system, the fructose makes you hungry and can't control your appetite. But to actually gain weight, it is calories at that point. And the thing about fat is it's like nine calories per gram. So if you go to countries where there's not a lot of fat, a lot of fat in the diet, though people will can trigger the switch, they can become diabetic, they can become hypertensive, all those things of the switch. But to get really massively overweight, it's a little bit harder to do if there's not a lot of fat around because the fat just has so many calories per gram. So the in our country, where we have all this processed food and fried this and fried that, the it's not that the fried food will make you fat by itself, but if you have that fructose, that sugar that, or, or you're making fructose that triggers you to the switch, then the high fat food will, will, will be like uh, putting wood on the fire. So think of fructose as the actual fire and the food is the, is the firewood, but of the firewood, the one that burns the biggest and the, is the strongest are the ones that have a lot of fat in it. So seed oils have become really popular and fat has in general but we're because we're eating so much fat in our processed food as well you know it's the triple whammy because you've got sugar and you in it or high fructose corn syrup you've got salt and you got fat so the the, the sugar tr triggers the switch the salt helps really convert things into fructose and then you got the fat that that really is giving you the calories to gain gain weight. So this is why on a low carb diet, you can eat all the a, a very high fat diet, and you're not going to gain fat gain weight because you're regulating your weight so well. You you fill up.
people on a low carb diet don't have to actually go on a diet res caloric restriction because they naturally won't eat as much because they fill up easier. And that's because they're, they haven't activated the switch there. So they, you know, they can eat that high fat food, but they're not going to, mm -hmm. to really get a lot of weight from it. So there's many things I want to ask you and we're, we are getting some time. So I'm going to kind of try and let's see if we can get really targeted here. So you just mentioned something that made me think of intermittent fasting, which is all the rage right now with the research on how it helps diseases like certain autoimmune diseases, weight yeah. loss, the list is long, cognitive decline, et cetera, et cetera. Can you comment on the utility of intermittent fasting from the research that you've done and your perspective? I love intermittent fasting. I think it's a fantastic way to lose weight. It's mm -hmm. easy. I think it's a fantastic system. I also think low-carb diets in general are very good. And if you do mm -hmm. do intermittent fasting, so long as you're not getting hypoglycemic from it. I would try to cut back as well on those bad foods that we talked about. And I would focus on drinking, staying really well hydrated. And actually that's one of my, my second quote for you is, is, you know, keep hydrated or stay hydrated because it turns out it really makes a difference. And if you keep your serum electrolytes or sodium normal, it helps keep the fructose from being produced and it's really good. And we actually uh, did studies where we gave animals water and we could s slow the development of obesity, even with sugar. So uh, try to stay hydrated. What I recommend is drink a glass of water before each meal. It's so easy. Mm -hmm. Just make it, make it a requirement. And, you know, drink a glass of water as soon as you wake up in the morning. And if you're going to have a snack, drink a glass of water before the snack. You know, mm -hmm. it will make a huge difference. I have people emailing me saying, this is the unbelievable how powerful this is. You know, I've lost that weight that I couldn't lose. And so when you so see, I, yeah. <laughs> so when you see somebody running around, you know, the, these young athletic types that are lean and mean and, you know, they have their huge water bottle next to them. That is an association that is real. And they need the water to stay hydrated, but the water is keeping them healthy. So that's, right. it's just really important. I got to ask you, Dr. Rick, about uric acid. Is there anything you want to add about that when it comes to gaining weight? Yes, especially related to you, your point about hormones and postmenopausal effects. So estrogen has many, many beneficial effects. And we've studied estrogen in our research. And, you know, it keeps blood vessels healthy in many respects. But one of the most powerful benefits of estrogens is that they lower uric acid. So women, young women have uric acid levels that tend to be lower than men. And uric acid turns out to be important and how fructose works. And so when, when you make or eat fructose, it, it's broken down. Remember I talked about how it lowers the energy in the cell? It uses uric acid to lower the energy in the cell. And when it does that, that's how it triggers the switch. So uric acid is considered biologically active. It isn't just a waste product that we get rid of. And we get uric acid when we eat fructose. We make uric acid when we 
drink alcohol, especially beer. And so uric acid is, is a bad guy. So it's another villain at the dinner table when you're uh, looking around at what you want to eat, what you don't want to eat. You know, sugar can make uric acid. Alcohol can. You don't want to drink a lot of alcohol, uh, especially beer. And certain shellfish, and which we love, like shrimp, they can make uric acid. But the uric acid can play a role in driving these diseases. And people with high uric acid are at risk for diabetes and obesity. And when you are postmenopausal and you lose your estrogen, uric acid levels go up. And it's associated with women getting increased risk for obesity and diabetes and all this. And, and it's even worse for women because at the same level of uric acid, women seem to be more sensitive to it. So when the uric acid goes up postmenopausally, it becomes the same levels as it does for men, but it's like worse because it's doing more for, for at the same level in women than it does in men. So mm. a very strong argument for hormonal for hormones and hormonal therapy. And I believe it's a major player in why following menopause people are at risk for, you know, everything going to hell, going to, you know, into pieces. Right. And so just as a fellow physician, is that at all controversial anymore? Because, you know, even ACOG, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the only indications they have for estrogen therapy are uh, vasomotor symptoms like hot flashes, urogenital atrophy, osteoporosis, that's it. But all these diseases are increased in women who are hormonally deficient or in the hormonal poverty of menopause. And yet, just what you said, how estrogen improves blood vessels and it affects weight and 75% of us at 60 are overweight or obese. Yeah. So I'm just wondering from your perspective, is that at all a controversial statement? It, well, it is, <laughs> it is. But you know, the, the, no one has really, like the Women's Health Initiative and some of these trials, what they really need to do is they need to consider uric acid as, as a potential mechanism to explain the effects postmenopause. Mm -hmm. And to, when they do these studies, like with estrogens, they should include, you know, measuring what happens to the uric acid to see if this really can predict the better, you know, can predict the results. So in other words, if the uric acid levels don't go down, it suggests, to me, it would suggest that that person is less likely to show a benefit. I've been studying uric acid for 30 years, and I can tell you that biologically, it's really powerful. And, and we even did some studies in humans that we published in the JAMA showing that uric acid can raise blood pressure in people, uh, especially in younger people. There's links with insulin resistance and a variety of things. It is controversial. We need to do more clinical studies, but experimentally and in the animal and in the cell culture, it is very clear that uric acid is biologically active and is doing things that we tend not to want to have done to us. Uh, so right. I would say, yes, we need to do more studies, but like uh, I've published uh, studies showing that lowering uric acid improves insulin resistance. I've shown it improves blood pressure. There's studies showing that it improves vascular function. There's studies hundreds of studies that show that if you have a high uric acid, it's associated with poorer outcomes, including cancers and all these things. So I, I believe that 
there's enough evidence there that everyone should measure their uric acid and know what it is. Now, whether or not you should go on a medication to lower the uric acid, I think that, you know, that may be a little more controversial because medications can carry side effects. But there are some things you can do to lower the uric acid. We just talked about them, you know, reduce your sugar intake, drink more water. Another one is vitamin C. Vitamin C is a vitamin. It's healthy. And if you take 500 milligrams twice a day, it's been shown in placebo-controlled trials to lower uric acid. So it's a good move. It helps the energy factories. You Certainly, there's enough evidence that high uric acid levels are associated with bad outcomes. And there's good evidence that low uric acids are associated with good outcomes. And there's pilot studies that show that lowering uric acid improves things. So in my mind, estrogens lower uric acid, vitamin C lowers uric acid, hydration lowers uric acid, exercising daily can lower uric acid, reducing sugar. These are all good things. They're all associated with good outcomes. We should use diet, exercise, vitamins, maybe hormones as, as you recommend. And I think that a lot can be gained. You don't necessarily have to go on allopurinol or a drug like that. But if your uric acid right. is really high and you have gout, I would recommend it. Well, you are a font of information about fat and sugar and uric acid and all these things. That is for sure. I'm going to direct everyone to your book and we're going to have uh, Dr. Richard share all his links and we'll have them in the show notes too but he has chapters on the optimal diet for blocking the fat switch in his book he has one for restoring your original weight and improving your health span so he's got all the how-tos in his book but dr richard please tell everyone where they can find your book and where they can connect with you online and find out more about the work that you're doing thank you karen so uh, my book's called nature wants us to be fat <laughs> And, uh, you know, exactly right. There's a section on, you know, the science and why, and, but there's also at least half of the book is devoted to how to block the switch and how to turn it off. And there's foods that turn it off. And so I do think that it, you'll find it useful and how to restore your energy. So that book can be, you can get it through, uh, Almost all sites, Amazon, Books a Million, Barnes and Noble, you can find it. And uh, my, I have a nice website. Well, at least I think it's nice. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's I didn't make it's it. Great. So. It's great. Really <laughs> yeah, but it's called drrichardjohnson.com, and that's a really good place to to find me. I have a thing called Link Bio, which you can Dr. Richard Johnson in it connects to all kinds of podcasts as well. But my website's the, my main site and mm -hmm. I'm findable on Instagram and Twitter. And so I think you should be able to find me. Okay. I love this quote you have on your website from Robert Lustig, the science behind how sugar is not food, but poison. And it reminds <laughs> me of, there's a Ted talk that is entitled, uh, I believe it's sugar is not a treat. And I really think this this gets to the truth that we really need to stop idolizing sugar. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, Rob Lustig's one of my heroes. And uh, but anyway, thank you so much for having me on your show, and thank you for those who've been listening.
Yeah, thank you for joining us, Dr. Johnson. Super happy to have you here. Important topic, great research you're doing. Direct everybody to the book. You can find it wherever books are sold. Nature wants us to be fat. Definitely check out Dr. Johnson's website. It is drrichardjohnson.com. He has lots of wonderful resources on there, and you can find out about all the wonderful research he is participating with. So thank you for the work that you are doing, Dr. Johnson. Thank you for really being a true healer and being more interested in the why people get disease than just treating it with drugs and surgery. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. And thank you all for joining us for another episode of The Hormone Prescription with Dr. Kieran. Hopefully you've learned something that you can put into effect in your life to impact your health and move it in the right direction. A journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. So what's one thing you could do today? Just drink water when you wake up, right? That's so super simple. If you take simple actions, put them in effect in your life before you know it, you will have improved health. So thanks so much for joining me. I look forward to seeing you again next week. Until then, peace, love, and hormones, y'all. Thank you so much for listening. I know that incredible vitality occurs for women over 40 when we learn to speak hormone and balance these vital regulators to create the health and the life that we deserve. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love it if you'd give me a review and subscribe. It really does help this podcast out so much. You can visit thehormoneprescription.com where we have some free gifts for you. And you can sign up to have a hormone evaluation with me on the podcast to gain clarity into your personal situation. Until next time, remember, take small steps each day to balance your hormones and watch the wonderful changes in your health that begin to unfold for you. Talk to you soon.